immediate aftermath of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The American government came to the conclusion that a lone gunman had changed the course of human history by killing the most powerful man in the world with three rifle shots fired from the elevated window of an office building. And for half a century, they have stuck rigidly to this fabrication, while critics, scientists, playwrights and poets have produced books and essays and films to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that this version of our Western history is a physical impossibility. Over and over again, we have been told that this man did it by himself. He didn't have any help, and he did it because he was a lonely madman and a communist to boot. We are also meant to believe that there is nothing remotely suspicious in his being shot on live television in a basement full of police officers before he had a chance to tell his side of the story. So there is quite clearly no need to investigate further. Of course, every thinking person knows this is absolute nonsense. And being nonsensical, it naturally leads thinking people to ask some very important questions like, why did the American government come up with such a lame and improbable scenario to account for what had happened? And then why did they stick with it so dogmatically for so many years afterwards? Exactly what and who are they protecting? And how can it be that even such venerable institutions as the BBC have played along with this charade in the intervening decades? We now know that there were actually eight riflemen firing at the President on that day. We know where they were located in Dealey Plaza and we know their names. However, those with sharp eyes will already be asking themselves why we were only showing the location of six assassins in this schematic. We're doing this because any casual onlooker who happened to be in Daly Plaza at 12.29 on November 22, 1963, might well have caught sight of these six. Many people did. Witnesses like Arnold Rowland, Richard Randolph Carr, Lee Bowers, Amos Ewans, Mary Mormon, they all gave precise descriptions of men they observed in the windows of the book depository and on the famous grassy knoll. But none of them observed two of the riflemen who shot at the president. No one did. And the reason why no one did is itself the key to the mystery. A mystery which begins with a very simple question. Supposing you wanted to shoot at a man on a barren, empty street without anybody seeing you, where could you possibly hide? However, the riflemen who took part in the assassination were not as important to an understanding of what the Kennedy assassination was really all about as were a group of 20 men who had gathered together the night before at the home of Dallas oil millionaire Clint Murchison. These men were a much more important part of the story than the assassins themselves because they hired the eight snipers and paid them. We even know how much they paid them. So who were these men? What brought them together to orchestrate such a foul and despicable deed? Why did they, and more importantly those who came after them, cover up the crime with such ruthless brutality for so long afterwards? And how can it be that these men and what they stood for has left an indelible legacy that still influences our daily lives right up to the present day? To answer these questions, we must inevitably step back into history and most people will not like this very much because most people have very little interest in history this however is going to be a history lesson quite unlike anything that anyone has ever heard 
It certainly will be nothing like what we are taught in school, and yet it begins with a name which most people have heard, but probably won't be able to place. The name of E.H. Harriman. Who was E.H. Harriman? Dynamite's ready, Butch. Open the door or that's it. You think E.H. Harriman get himself killed for you? Woodcock? I work for Mr. E.H. Harriman of the Union Pacific Railroad. And he entrusted me. Two Americans in particular will be amused to learn that Edward Henry Harriman was actually a real historical figure. This man was one of America's first industrial giants, and like the Rockefellers in oil and the Carnegies in steel, he got his start by borrowing money from the Rothschilds, of whom we'll hear more later, to create a monopoly for his own business, which was railroads. He was the 19th century railroad king. It was a monopoly which wouldn't be allowed today, and it helped him turn to create the Rockefeller oil monopoly. Now this gave America's first industrial giants colossal power, these were the first people in human history, we must forget, whose businesses were worth more than most countries. People whose fortunes dwarfed anything that the Caesars or the Tudors or the Medici ever dreamed of. So, being greedy, they used this power to engage in price fixing. Naturally, they formed a cartel. Their attitude was that they could charge whatever they liked for steel and oil and transporting goods on the railways. They knew that all American business was dependent on them, and they made sure there was no competition. So they could ignore market forces and charge pretty much whatever they liked. Now this naturally caused resentment, and it's very interesting that the press at that time started calling these first Illuminati bankers and industrialists robber barons. Of course, once these fortunes began to be made, others naturally tried to get in on the act. One who succeeded was J.P. Morgan, who became a private banker during this period. But modern critics have discovered that far from being the richest man in America everyone thought he was, it turned out upon his death that Morgan actually only owned 17% of Morgan Bank, and that like so many others, he was simply a front for the Rothschilds family. Five years after E.H. Harriman died and handed on the business to his sons, W. Averill Harriman and E. Roland Harriman, this new breed of Western business moguls faced their first really big test with the coming of World War I. Once again, we must never forget that this was the first time in human history that a truly global conflict had been fought. It was sure to have long-lasting international repercussions, and many observers at the time had their doubts as to whether Western industrial capitalism which was still in its infancy, could cope with the demands of war production. In the world economic recession which followed, many feared these fledgling industries might vanish altogether as countries struggled with debt and war reparations. But actually, Western capitalism emerged from World War I in a far stronger state than it was in at the beginning. So how could this be? The First World War taught the new class of international bankers and industrialists a very simple lesson. War is good for business. Take, for instance, Remington. We tend to associate their name with typewriters, but actually they made most of the rifles and handguns used during the Great War and made a colossal fortune in the process. The banks, in their turn, lapped this up because it meant that defence contractors were having no trouble repaying the huge loans they had outstanding and, best of all, the world's richest nations had had to borrow huge sums from the merchant bankers in the first place to finance the war the Americans and the British just as much as the Germans. And they would now be repaying these loans 
to the banks for decades to come at a steep rate of interest. For international merchant bankers, the Rothschilds in particular, the First World War had been a gift from heaven. And people watching this should ask themselves a simple question before passing judgment. Supposing you were in business during that war and the contract you had with the government to supply the troops with tin hats or boots or uniforms or gunpowder was netting you millions every year in profit. And then one day the war ended and your money stopped completely. What do you think your attitude to war might be? That war was good for business was not the only lesson the ruling class has learned during this period. The Russian Revolution of 1917 terrified rich people all over the world. Watching Lenin and Trotsky taking over such a vast area of the globe, the kings and queens of Europe's tiny sovereign states in particular became extremely nervous. The question on all their minds was, supposing the communist success in Russia should inspire their own working class to rise in revolt. Many of the crowned heads of Europe, like England's George V, had been related to Tsar Nicholas, and the brutal execution of the Tsar and his family, particularly the bayonetting of his young daughters, sent a shockwave through the upper classes of every nation. Did a similar fate lie in store for the royal families of Holland, Sweden, Spain and England? This question was lying heavily on the thoughts of the elite when the First World War ended in 1918, and it had the effect of focusing the minds of the new Illuminati bankers and industrialists on the question of what to do for best with a defeated and dilapidated Germany. The population were poor, penniless and worn out, yet the German economy still contained some of the most sophisticated and expensive industrial stock on the planet. The Illuminati sensed an opportunity. Supposing as the world's first international businessmen. They could get their hands on Germany's steel mills, her coal mines, her factories, ports and her shipbuilding industry. Over the years certain names have become very familiar to those who maintain an interest in the Kennedy assassination. None more so than Alan Dulles, whom Kennedy fired after the Bay of Pigs disaster, and yet later he somehow managed to chair the Warren Commission, which was supposed to be investigating Kennedy's death. Something few people know, however, is that Dulles and his older brother John Foster Dulles wrote the Treaty of Versailles. They were both lawyers of Sullivan and Cromwell, and it was largely they who decided that the German people must pay war reparations totaling 135 billion marks. A mind-boggling sum at that time, which today translates into 250 trillion. When this was announced, the legendary UK economist J. Maynard Keynes maintained it was a ludicrous sum, and he did a swift calculation from which he reasoned that it would take Germany until 1988, 60 years hard labour, to pay it off. But it didn't. So why? Maynard Keynes sensed that the Dulles brothers, backed as they were by the new Illuminati, were trying quite deliberately to sabotage the German economy. And they succeeded. As mass unemployment led to hyperinflation, the famous stories of people papering their walls with worthless Reichmarks and handing over their life savings for a loaf of bread soon followed. With German investors on their knees, the new Illuminati moved in and began buying up shares of stock in German industry at a knockdown price. Now, why did they do this? The cynical mind would say to make a buck, 
but it really wasn't that simple. What they wanted was to make Germany strong again so that she would become a bulwark against Soviet communism. Germany was fighting for its life. Certain measures were needed to protect it from its enemies. I cannot say that I am sorry we applied those measures. We were a bulwark against Bolshevism. We were a pillar of Western culture. A bulwark and a pillar the West may yet wish to retain. It was around this time that the newspapers, which these same rich people owned, made sure the word Bolshe, a truncation of Bolshevik, ended the English language, so that we would associate Bolshevism with aggression. And it was with these subtle and not-so-subtle methods that the international elite began to shape our destiny for the remainder of the 20th century. The intellectuals of the period were furious. They were incensed, they were depressed, and you get a very good feeling of the political atmosphere of the time from the diaries of the Labour politician Harold Nicholson when he writes, We have lost our willpower since our willpower is divided. The people of the governing class think only of their own fortunes, which means hatred of the Reds. Our class interests cut across our national interests, and I go to bed in gloom. With such heavy investment coming into the country, particularly from America and Britain, Germany began to recover very rapidly. And then the new class of international financiers began searching around for a homegrown authoritarian political movement they could support. What they needed was someone they could count on to be both aggressive and expansionist. Ultra-right-wing causes, which at normal times would have been ignored and marginalised, were suddenly given very careful consideration. Until finally, the rich elite found a man and an idea which they felt might deliver the political outcome they desired. Adolf Hitler and his fledgling National Socialist Party. At the same time that the world's rich elite began grooming Hitler for his starring role, they also became even more deeply involved in military intelligence. I say even more because the Dulles brothers, Avril Harriman, and the chief of Remington, Samuel Bush, a man referred to as the original Merchant of Death, had a relationship with American military intelligence stretching back into World War I. The lesson here being that the American variant of military intelligence started out with businessmen protecting their investments, just as if they were a mafia. Right from the very beginning, it had nothing to do with national security and everything to do with money. In Hitler... The Illuminati had found a ready-made stooge who could be the face of this autocratic new movement. And when the time came to put together a new secret intelligence service which was going to help protect all the money they had tied up in the German economy, these men also found what was readily available, the Order of the Skull and Bones at Yale University. Discussion of secret societies is something of a minefield because it so easily invites ridicule. It is very difficult for the general public to accept that the super-rich leaders of their Western world can possibly be as mad and deranged as they actually are. The public, generally speaking, are sensible. 
and level-headed people who have to balance their checkbooks, so they inevitably tend to laugh at stories about Satanists and occult believers. But if you talk to any well-informed historians, they are all aware of the important role which various secret societies have played in human history. The Black Hand always played a pivotal role in the history of the Mafia. If you talk to anyone in the UK who is political and read books, they are always aware that the ruling class of Britain, including every member of the royal family, is a Freemason. And the emblem of the death's head was sported on the caps of the high-ranking Nazi officers from the very beginning. The symbols of these secret societies always seem to play around with some kind of skull and bones motif, so that it's abundantly clear what their mission statement is. These people are pirates, willing to commit any crime for big money. And they first became established in America at Yale University in 1833 with General William Huntington Russell and Alfonso Taft. Of course, being a secret society, they made other people curious about them. And in 1867, some undergraduates from a rival campus society broke into their headquarters to see what this skull and bones thing was all about. They reported that inside there were lots of lamps and candles, many dilapidated human skulls lying next to a fool's cap and bells. And it was morbidly dark because the walls were covered in black velvet. Having established a suitably satanic atmosphere, initiation rites were then performed on new members who had to engage in group masturbation and sodomy while they lay in a coffin. Now, it's very easy to dismiss all of this as bizarre, silly and irrelevant until you see the list of Skull and Bones members who have ruled America since Skull and Bones began. Although they only graduate 15 initiates a year, those 15 have always gone on to occupy the very highest positions in American society. U.S. Secretary of State William Max Evans was a Bonesman, as was Treasury Secretary Franklin McVeigh. Chief Justice Simeon Eben Baldwin, and the 27th President of the United States, William Howard Taft. The founder of American football, Walter Camp, came through Skull and Bones, as did the very first chairman of the Federal Reserve, P.A.J., and director of Standard Oil, Percy Rockefeller. Averill Harriman, the son of E.H. Harriman, and founder of Harriman Brothers, the largest investment bank in the world, was a bondsman, and so were both of the George Bush presidents. During his premiership, John F. Kennedy was surrounded by bondsmen, like McGeorge Bundy and David Acheson, son of Dean Acheson. Kennedy knew these men referred to each other as brothers under the skin. They swear an oath of secrecy and then ruthlessly vow to help each other's careers in any way they can throughout their lives, even if it means committing murder. In Britain, every literate person knows that all of the top police officers are Freemasons, because if there are ten candidates for a top job, a Mason will always select a brother Mason for the post. Skull and Bones works the same way, and JFK took this problem so seriously that he even made speeches warning America about the danger of secret societies. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically... He knew the people on this list were neither silly nor irrelevant, because he knew they were the real holders of power in America, operating as they were, as an unelected shadow government, accountable to no one. 
And it was these same people who brought Hitler to power during the 1920s by becoming business partners with leading German industrialists. The reality of the situation prevailing at that time can be very easily understood simply by looking at the cover of Fritz Thyssen's book, I Paid Hitler, on which he is depicted as a puppet master controlling Hitler's strings. Thyssen was a billionaire industrialist. He was the man who built the Bismarck. His company, United Steelworks, made three quarters of all Germany's steel, and he joined together with Skull and Bones members Prescott Bush and George Herbert Walker to financially assist the Nazi party. Together they recruited head of the German central bank, Jalmar Schacht, to the fascist cause, and then combined with other leading industrialists to sign the letter which convinced Hindenburg to appoint Hitler as Chancellor on the 20th of February 1933. Had anyone inquired around this time about the postal address of the Nazi party, they could legitimately have been told that it was 39 Broadway, Manhattan, New York, because this was where Averill Harriman, Prescott Bush and George Herbert Walker kept their office. And being no fool, Fritz Thiessen used their banking services to set up secret cash funds funneled through another bank in Rotterdam, the Bank voor Handel in Schäfwart, to finance the building of the first official Nazi party headquarters, the Brown House. This was all done with the full cooperation of the Dutch bankers, who orchestrated this entire sinister business with the assistance of the Thiessen family lawyer, Alan Dulles. Of course, the Germans themselves were ecstatic. We've all seen the newsreels from that time in which they are stomping around in their jackboots, acting like a master race, because they had swallowed the propaganda that they were being led to glory by a superman who had rebuilt the economy and Germany's infrastructure all by himself. This was a lie. Hitler didn't have any money. You can only build autobahns with one thing, capital investment, and that investment came mainly from America. The Nazis were also given a lot of help from the city of London, help which came mainly in the shape of Sir Montague Collett Norman, Governor of the Bank of England. Norman was connected to Bush and Walker through the merger of Harriman's with the Brown Brothers, who traded in London as Brown Shipley, hence Brown Brothers Harriman. The people behind this multinational investment bank had a long-standing racial tradition. Few British people at the time were aware that they only enjoyed relatively cheap clothing because it was all made from slave cotton brought from America on the Brown Brothers ships and sold to British mill owners. Montague Norman was heir to this colossal Brown Brothers fortune. As the de facto head of world banking, he made no secret of his only being interested in the richest 1% of people. And even as the newspapers began to fill with stories of Nazi concentration camps, he still declared himself to be Hitler's most avid supporter. We must lend Nazi Germany 90 million marks, he declared. It may never be repaid, but it will be less of a loss than the fall of Nazism. One might have thought Sir Montague's close personal friends, the royal family, would have been outraged by his comments. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is part of the remit of this film to try and make people aware of the tricks the rich play in order to control how we think. George Orwell once said that the ruling class in every age have tried to impose a false view of the world upon their followers. And there's no better example than the way in which the British have been duped into believing that their royal family are called Windsor and descend from English kings like Henry VIII. The British royal family are, actually, 
German, and their real name is Sachs-Coburg-Gotha. They only changed it to Windsor, after Windsor Castle, in 1917, to hide the fact that they were German during the First World War. Prince Harry, in honour of his German roots, has been known to dress as a Nazi on several occasions. Dozens of critics have pointed out that the Duke of Edinburgh's brother was the head of the Nazi SS. And King Edward VIII, before he abdicated to marry the American divorcee, Wallace Simpson, visited Hitler to make it abundantly clear to the whole world that he too was a Nazi. He even signed his name, Herzog von Windsor. Thinking people during this period realized that this whole thing with kissing up to the Fuhrer somehow transcended national boundaries. The rich people from the most diverse countries had bonded together because they all shared a common goal. The kings and the queens and the international bankers and industrialists wanted to make certain communism could never succeed. They were determined they weren't going to finish up like the Russian royal family and they were determined to hang on to their money. They were much more afraid of the ordinary working people in their own countries than they were of fascist Germany. And this prevailing sentiment amongst the world's ruling class led America's elite to attempt a fascist coup d'etat in 1934. I hope it will be plain to people by now that Hitler's economic miracle is the greatest myth in human history. There was no economic miracle. There are no miracles. And if there are, why can't the Germans do it all again now? If you want to construct a network of new roads, new steelworks, and new factories, you need one thing, money. You need investment. And the investment didn't come from Hitler. It came from Brown Brothers Harriman and their business associate, Fritz Thiessen. It came from Jalnar Schacht and his best friend, Sir Montague Collett Norman. It came from men like Axel Wenegren, the Swedish multimillionaire arms manufacturer, and Charles Bedeau, the French business mogul. These people were all in the same bed with their Nazi friends, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, the Dulles brothers, Prescott Sheldon Bush, and George Herbert Walker, with whom they'd created the Union Bank for laundering Nazi money. And with stage one of their plan for world domination complete, they now turned to the second phase, which was meant to be the overthrow of American democracy and the imposition of fascist government upon the United States. In order to pull this off, these Nazis raised money from America's richest families, many of whom, in this new consumerist society, had become household names. The Colgate family, the Birdseye family, the DuPont family, the Rockefeller family, these people handed over millions to the American financiers of Hitler so they could hire, train and supply a private army which would attempt to overthrow the democratically elected government of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and impose fascist dictatorship in America. Of course it's natural to wonder, considering they had such advantages, how on earth they failed to pull it off. The simple answer is that they chose the wrong man, because their choice to lead this Nazi insurrection was Major General Smedley Darlington Butler, the most decorated soldier of the period and in all of American history, perhaps the most unsung hero of all. Because Smedley Butler was the most genuine lover of liberty the world has ever seen. And here before the Congressional Committee, the highest representation of the American people under subpoena to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. 
The plan as outlined to me was to form an organization of veterans, to use as a bluff or as a club at least, to intimidate the government and break down our democratic institutions. The upshot of the whole thing was that I was supposed to lead an organization of 500,000 men, which would be able to take over the functions of government. My main interest in all this is to preserve our democratic institutions. I want to retain the right to vote, the right to speak freely, and the right to write. If we maintain these basic principles, our democracy is safe. No dictatorship can exist with suffrage, freedom of speech, and press. Smedley Butler tricked the plotters into thinking he was interested for just long enough until he was sure who all the major players were, and then he told the president. This put FDR in a quite impossible position. America at that time was just coming out of the Great Depression. The last thing he wanted was to cause another economic downturn, and he feared that if he scooped up all the leading bankers and captains of industry in the United States and threw them all in jail, the country just might fall apart. So what could he do? To Smedley Butler's utter incredulity, he chose, in the end, to do nothing. In spite of the fact that these men had committed treason and should have been hanged, their power was such that they were not even charged, let alone tried. And so great was their influence, they were able to keep America out of the war until December the 7th, 1941. Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt finally realized he had to do something. His response was the Trading with the Enemy Act, which allowed him to seize assets like the Union Bank, through which Bush, Walker and Harriman had been financing Thiessen. Roosevelt didn't realize, however, that it was already a case of too little, too late. Because without his knowledge, American business moguls had been tumbling over one another for two years in their efforts to assist and do business with the Hitler regime. Typical of this American spirit of enterprise was Sosthenes Ben, the president of AT&T, who flew immediately to Berlin when war was declared to put in Hitler's phone lines. He gave the Nazis the most high-tech, state-of-the-art telecommunication system in the world at that time so that Hitler could rule the European mainland with the maximum efficiency. Rich men have been hiring thugs to do their dirty work, especially to frighten people, since human civilization began. What people have to try to appreciate is that Nazism, in reality, was simply the first time in human history that the rich had enough wealth to hire an entire country of those to do their dirty work. Some of the most emotive images in world history are those of the Nazi war machine sweeping across the Low Countries to begin their occupation of France. And people have always assumed that the trucks used for the miles-long troop convoys must have been German trucks. But if anyone at that time had taken the trouble to lift up the cowling and look at the engine, they would have found these were actually Ford trucks which had been built with personal permission from Henry Ford, who was sitting in his office 4,000 miles away in Dearborn, Michigan, a service for which he was given the Grand Cross of the Eagle, the highest honour the Nazis ever bestowed on a civilian. 
Ford sued the U.S. Army, uh, the U.S. Uh, government in, uh, in the 50s because during the war the U.S. Uh, Air Force bombed their tank-making facilities in Germany. And this is true. And what was it, like 52 or something, they sued the U.S. government for, for destroying their factories. And they won. They won the lawsuit. So I had to write a little song for Henry here. Hitler so admired Henry Ford, he kept a life-size portrait of him on the wall next to his desk, and even his legendary Panzer tanks were tainted by these sorts of practices, because they were made by I.G. Farben, who had entered into a cartel with the Rockefellers' Standard Oil. The government in Washington knew all about this, and largely did nothing. Licensing arrangements for trading with the enemy in wartime were issued without any fuss, even to the extent that after the occupation of France, the Chase and Morgan banks in Paris simply carried on doing business as usual. The incredible truth, which the rich elite have managed to hide from the world for 70 years through their control over school books and our education system, is that the Nazi war machine was actually an American business. And for the Rockefellers, DuPonts, Harrimans, Walkers and Bushes in particular, it was a highly lucrative business. For their part, Coca-Cola's contribution to the war effort was to sell billions of soft drinks to the thirsty Nazis while they were strafing and bombing Allied soldiers, particularly in very hot regions. In the deserts, where refrigerators tend to be scarce, there were even stories of Messerschmitt pilots wrapping wet towels around bottles of Coke, tying them to their aircraft, then flying up to altitude, where the cold and the wind chill turned the wet towel into a solid block of ice. They would then dive down, crack open the towel, and enjoy an ice-cold Coke in the desert. If they had wanted to, the Western multinationals could have grounded the Luftwaffe and stopped the war at any time because the German aircraft were totally dependent on imported supplies of tetraethyl lead, an additive which prevents knocking in aero engines. But Standard Oil kept the supply of this vital resource going through neutral Switzerland for the entire war. And any Dutch people who might be wondering at this point what kind of percentage the Swiss took from this little arrangement, they need to be aware that thanks to Prince Bernhard von Lippe of the Netherlands, the father of the recently retired Queen Beatrix and prominent member of the Nazi party, Royal Dutch Shell gave Hitler millions of tons of crude oil for nothing. The Dutch royal family actually fueled the invasion force which annexed Holland and were instrumental in helping the Nazis to rape their own country. But most shocking of all is the truth of what really happened in the little Polish town of Otsvitsim. This sleepy little hamlet just happened to be in an extremely mineral-rich region, particularly for coal, which Western industrialists had wanted to get their hands on for years. With the coming of the Hitler regime and the invasion of Poland, the fascist financiers 
had the bright idea of turning this conquered region into an investor's paradise by building a Nazi concentration camp near the town and utilizing the slave labor available to drastically reduce their own production costs. Few people are aware of the gigantic scale of the Nazi concentration camp network and are blissfully unaware that the real purpose behind their construction was to make a profit for the rich which is why they stole all the gold watches, gold wedding rings and gold teeth fillings and melted them down into gold ingots. To this day there are bars of gold lying in the vaults of the Bank of England which have the Nazi swastika stamped on them. Gold stolen from Jewish corpses. It shouldn't come as any great surprise that George Herbert Walker's family were slave owners on the cotton plantations of 1930s America. Walker was used to organizing slave labor. So while his business associate, Averill Harriman, was paying for Hitler's half million SS troops and supplying them all with brand new Thompson submachine guns, because he did, Walker took over the management of this new Polish concentration camp. And when his Nazi friends started complaining that they couldn't pronounce the name Oswitzium any better than I can, they all got together and decided they had better Germanize the name into something which sat more comfortably on Nazi tongues. It was in this way that the world first heard of Auschwitz. Because the truth about Auschwitz and the entire Nazi war machine is that they were essentially no different to McDonald's. They were American business enterprises abroad, businesses which the richest European families invested in and businesses which because of slave labor made obscene profits which Prescott Sheldon Bush took and placed in a blind trust which later financed a Bush political dynasty which produced two presidents of the United States his son George Herbert Walker Bush and his grandson George Walker Bush. This picture of the railway leading into Auschwitz has since World War II become the iconic image of the Holocaust to us it now represents something like the gate to hell but how differently, one wonders, would we have looked at this image all of our lives if we had always known that this railway line was an American railway line laid by the Harriman brothers on behalf of Uncle Sam. The Standard Oil IG Farben cartel even made the Zyklon B gas for the Jewish Holocaust. Now anyone who at this point is thinking that all this simply cannot be true because if it was, someone would have sued, well someone did. This information came into the public domain because of a Dutch intelligence agent who was so disgusted when he found all of this out, he leaked it to the press. As a result of which, two very senior Jewish gentlemen, Kurt Julius Goldstein and Peter Gingold, filed suit against the American government. Of course, the more discriminating among us will now be asking how it can be that this story went completely unreported in the mainstream media. One might just as well ask why the Times in London was writing favourable stories about the Nazi concentration camps throughout the 1930s, and why Lord Rothmere was still referring to Hitler as a great gentleman as late as 1940. You really would think by now that people would have realised that it isn't so much the bias in the media which really matters, it's the things they know about, but never tell you, that really matter. Because the truth is that the press knew exactly what was going on in the concentration camps all through the war. They never said a word about it, 
because they knew who was making money from the slave labor. Now, it's very easy to imagine what the response of a conservative politician, American or British, would be to all of this. If all of this is true, he's bound to ask why nobody said a word about American industrialists building Hitler's war machine at the Nuremberg trials. How come it never got mentioned? Where's the responsibility of the Vatican, who signed in 1933 the Concordat with Hitler? giving him his first tremendous prestige. Are we now to find the Vatican guilty? Where's the responsibility of the world leader Winston Churchill, who said in an open letter to the London Times in 1938, 1938, Your Honor, were England to suffer national disaster, I should pray to God to send a man of the strength of mind and will of an Adolf Hitler. Are we now to find Winston Churchill guilty? Where's the responsibility of those American industrialists who helped Hitler to rebuild his armaments and profited by that rebuilding? Are we now to find the American industrialists guilty? No, Your Honor, no. Germany alone is not guilty. The whole world is as responsible for Hitler as Germany. It is an easy thing to condemn one man in the dark. It is easy to condemn the German people to speak of the basic flaw in the German character that allowed Hitler to rise to power. But at the same time, comfortably ignore the basic flaw of character that made the Russians sign pacts with him, Winston Churchill praise him, American deserts profit by him, American deserts profit by him, profit by him, profit by him, profit by him, profit by him. In school, we are taught that the Allies defeated Nazi Germany in World War II. This is not true. The Nazis won the war. Because the real Nazis, the rich, played on both sides. That's what a rich businessman does. He arranges things so that he is well thought of by both sides. So then whoever wins, he wins and his money is safe. Now a lot of people will still think it is simply ludicrous to suggest the Second World War was a phony war. They are bound to say that no one who was there at the time thought it was a phony war. Really? A new baby, 200 gross of buckles, unlimited petrol and all the whiskey you want. You're sitting pretty, aren't you, Holden? Yes, it is a lovely war. Well, wouldn't you if you were in my place? Wouldn't everybody? Doesn't everybody? Was a blasted phony anyway. I'm a bit tired of that. Tired of what? This phony war business. Well, isn't it? No, it's not. I've just come out of hospital after ten days in an open boat off the Pharaohs, and I'm sick and tired of blokes like you with soft jobs ashore. Come outside. Now, don't be silly. I've lost two fingers off that hand, but I'm going to take you outside and knock your block off with my right. Ah, oh, take it easy. There's no need for that. I'm sorry, I apologize. Tuck him outside if you insist. That won't do any good. It's not his fault. It's the fault of all of us. You make me sick. All of you. It may be a phony war to you, but it's not to all the boys at sea. It never has been. Now, obviously, the British, and the Dutch in particular, 
will have a very hard time accepting that their royal family profited from Nazi concentration camp slave labour. But if you go online, there is so much about this on the internet now. It's become plain that historians are more and more proving that those days were really all about the Western world's rich coming together to fund a Nazi war machine which was meant to protect them from the Soviets. The Duke of Edinburgh practically admitted this when he said, in those days we were anti-communist because the Russians killed half my bloody family. And when this cabal of secret Nazis got together to discuss how they were going to pay for this Nazi war machine, because rich people never accept a loss, they hired a psychopath, Hitler, who they knew would go along with their building concentration camps so that slave labour would pay for all the planes and the tanks and the guns. And you can see in the more intelligent movies from that period, like Hitchcock's Saboteur, that the artists and writers of that time knew the rich were fascist and completely understood what they were really up to. Why is it that you sneer every time you refer to this country? You've done pretty well here. I don't get it. No, you wouldn't. You're one of the ardent believers, a good American. Oh, there are millions like you. People that plod along without asking questions. I hate to use the word stupid, but it seems to be the only one that applies. The great masses. The moron millions. Well, there are a few of us who are unwilling to just troop along. A few of us who are clever enough to see that there's much more to be done than just live small, complacent lives. A few of us in America who desire a more profitable type of government. When you think about it, Mr. Kane, the competence of totalitarian nations is much higher than ours. They get things done. Yeah, they get things done. They bomb cities, sink ships, torture and murder so you and your friends can eat off of gold plate. It's a great philosophy. I neither intend to be bombed nor sunk, Mr. Kane. That's why I'm leaving now. And if things don't go right for you, if uh, we should win, then I'll come back. Perhaps I can get what I want then. Power. Yes. I want that as much as you want your comfort or your job or, or that girl. We all have different tastes, as you can see. Only I'm willing to back my tastes with the necessary force. Where was the Mafia while all this was going on? Well, a great deal which historians have learned recently, especially from sources like Double Cross, the book written by Sam Giancana's brother, has made it clear that the Mafia was much the same as the so-called German economic miracle and the American finance Nazi war machine and concentration camps. The mob, in reality, was a very different animal from the one portrayed by the movies and the media. American feature films have tended to focus on the exploits of gangsters like Richard Kane, the famous crime-busting Chicago cop who was planted in the police force to be a spy for Giancana, and hoods like Charles Nicoletti and Milwaukee Phil Aldericio, two of his favourite hitmen who built their own hypnobile so they could shoot people from the back of a moving car. Amongst many other atrocities this pair committed was one in which they forced the head of Billy McCarthy into a vice and squeezed until his eyeball popped out. An incident which a certain American film director felt was so entertaining, he included it in one of his movies. 
What most people have failed to realize, however, is that in most cases, the Mafia chieftains who actually ran organized crime did not approve, generally speaking, of these acts of gross brutality. Not that they gave a damn about morals, but the cleverest amongst them, like Paul the waiter Rika, realized that sensationalized events like the St. Valentine's Day massacre produced public outrage and a crackdown on their illegal activities. Rika realized that the effectiveness of mobsters like Diamond Joe Esposito came from keeping a low profile. And it was the Mafia bosses who learned this lesson best, Santos Traficante and Sam Giancana in particular, who in later years became the most successful. Even today, few Americans appreciate the extent to which their country was being controlled by organized crime in the 1930s. The mob were in total control of Hollywood because all the union labor needed to make films, carpenters, set construction, catering, they were all under the control of the mob. In particular, the control of the Teamsters Union, the drivers and haulage people who made essential deliveries to absolutely everyone, meant that virtually all American business was caught in the web of mafia racketeering. Studio bosses like Harry Cohn, Louis B. Mayer and the Warner Brothers knew they had to play along to get anything done at all. The big studio heads, like all rich businessmen, found they were forced to become friends with Mafia Dons. And the individual who exploited this situation most effectively was a gangster few people have ever heard of, Murray the Camel Humphreys. Generally speaking, the ethnically Italian gangsters of this period were coarse, brutal and most importantly ignorant men. They had no education. They couldn't hold an intelligent conversation because they'd spent no time in school. Don Corleone. I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your daughter's wedding. On the day of your daughter's wedding. This made doing business with refined and sophisticated entrepreneurs difficult, not to say embarrassing. And Sam Giancana was quick to spot this. So whenever a business deal needed to be made by someone with style and sophistication, he would send along his silver-tongued Welshman, Murray the Camel, so-called because he was known for being sartorial and for cutting a dash in expensive camel hair coats. Humphreys became a crucial figure during the pre-war period because his contact with the luminaries of Hollywood meant he received invitations from senior politicians who wanted to rub shoulders with stars like Clark Gable, George Raft, Cary Grant, Gary Cooper, Marilyn Monroe and Frank Sinatra, all of whom were mafia-controlled and used by the mob as bagmen, moving colossal sums of money around the country, because Giancana cynically realized the authorities were too starstruck to ever check their luggage. He even used a priest for the same purpose, who we referred to as Father Cash. And just as the priest was happy to take his percentage, so the politicians who Giancana always maintained were the easiest to corrupt, were happy to do the same. In Esposito's time, he had boasted of buying votes for Calvin Coolidge. By the time of World War II, Sam Giancana was boasting to his younger brother, we own the White House. He was adamant that every state governor, congressman and senior judge in the country was on the take. And the mob's most spectacular success 
as they sought control over all the big players was their corrupting of FBI director J. Edgar Hoover. It's become fairly widely known in recent years that Hoover was a transvestite homosexual. What is less well known is the elaborate scheme he dreamed up for accepting mafia bribes. What he used to do was to go to the $2 window at the racetrack where he was photographed many times by the press to give himself a clean upstanding image. What the pressmen didn't know was that he always took along a crooked emissary who placed huge bets which ran into the thousands at another window on races which were fixed by the mob boss Frank Costello. By keeping Hoover supplied with millions in winnings and holding on to compromising photographs of the FBI chief having sex with his lover Clyde Tolson which several CIA agents claim they've seen. The Mafia had American law enforcement entirely under their control. So the question then is, what do you do with that kind of power? The answer is that when you're the American Mafia, you routinely wipe out what they call do-gooders. This is how organized crime has influenced American society for nearly a century. If a decent man becomes a rising star in politics, and looks as if he might try to make a better life for ordinary people. They simply kill him as a matter of routine. And in the book they wrote together, Chuck and Sam Giancana Jr. are at pains to point out that a classic early case of this practice was the assassination of Anton Schermack. Schermack was a democratic politician who had tried to crack down on Al Capone's bootlegging operations. Many felt he would go on to become a great president himself until he was shot while on stage with FDR by Giuseppe Zangara. After the murder, Zangara claimed it was a political act, and he ought to be entitled to clemency because he simply hated all rich people. But this was actually what he'd simply been told to say by the mob, who were using him as a fall guy. When he went to the electric chair, Sam Giancana turned to his brother and expressed his pleasure at how nice and neat the whole affair had been. And he further explained that choosing a patsy to wipe out a politician who was a do-gooder was something the Italian Mafia had been doing forever. It was a practice as old as the Sicilian hills. And he was amazed at how the Mafia kept getting away with it. Because you really would think people would catch on. This was 1935. You have a decent chief executive, murdered, in broad daylight, shot by a patsy who was later killed himself by the authorities. Does this sound familiar? However, even in Schermack's time, the mob could not be said to be in complete control of American life. Because while they controlled the streets through their influence over politics and the justice system, they were not yet in control of the United States military or its mainstream media. Tragically, this all started to change with a series of events which began with the scuttling of the SS Normandy by a Manhattan-based Nazi agent. This was February the 9th, 1942. And having just joined the war, the United States was trying to keep its allies supplied with vital war material using convoys which were loaded on the waterfront and sailed almost every day out of New York Harbor. As everyone knows, many fell prey to the wolf packs of German U-boats, and the Normandy had been designed for much greater speed specifically so that she could outrun them. When she fell to sabotage, it was a colossal blow to the Allied war effort, and in response, a naval intelligence officer, Anthony Marslow, decided to enlist the help of the New York Mafia because he knew they were in control of all commercial activity on the docks. The subterfuge 
by foreign intelligence agents ceased. But the price America paid was calamitous. Because getting the Mafia's help meant getting permission from the boss of bosses, Lucky Lucanio. It is one of history's great ironies that the United States government went crawling to the Mafia for help at a moment when the mob themselves had just been severely weakened and could have been crushed altogether by an administration with enough political will. The notorious Lucanio had just started a 40-year prison sentence in Great Meadow Penitentiary, and most of his Sicilian gangsters back home were already behind bars, having been caught up in Mussolini's Mafia purge. Being himself Italian, Mussolini knew there was only one way to deal with the Mafia, and when he came to power, he ordered his iron prefect, Cesare More, to simply lock up all the Mafia families in Sicily, which wasn't exactly difficult because everybody knew who they were. Of course, after the Allied invasion of Sicily, Marsler then compounded his error by choosing Sicilian-Americans like New York Mayor Charles Paletti and OSS officer Joseph Russo, whose father was born in Corleone, to head AMGOT, the Allied military government, whose job it was to restore community cohesion on the island. And of course, their way of doing this was not only to let all the mafiosi out of jail, they even made known mob bosses like Genco Russo, and Don Calogero Vizzini into the heads of local government and gave them full civilian and military power over the island. So this was the accident of history through which the Mafia began its relationship with American military intelligence. It was a catastrophe for Italy, which has been ruled over by organized crime ever since. It was a catastrophe for Sicily, which suffered a brutal murder every three days in the post-war period, and it was a catastrophe for America, which saw many once vibrant communities, particularly in New Jersey, have the heart ripped out of them by mafia extortion and drug dealing. Lucky Luciano was deported after being released from jail, and having found a kindred spirit in another secret organization, the newly created Central Intelligence Agency, he was then able to combine the activities of organized crime, particularly international drug running, with smuggling of American-made weapons. This unholy alliance gave the world its first ever pirates who flew aeroplanes. That's what these people became. Pirates with aeroplanes. The CIA became the world's primary import-export of narcotics and used the colossal profits to fuel wars around the world, thereby enabling their friends in the military-industrial complex to sell yet more weapons. Under the disguise of liberal democracy, these men who had financed Hitler, became the enemies of liberty and democracy on a planet-wide basis. And as if to underline their Nazi credentials, they also hired all of the former German Nazi intelligence officers, like Reinhard Galen, who were out of a job at the end of the war and brought them into the fold at the beginning of the Cold War, even though they were perfectly well aware that these men had committed genocide and should have been prosecuted as war criminals. Their attitude, quite clearly, was that as they had paid for Nazi Germany, they were entitled to pick over its carcass in any way they chose. This was yet another political catastrophe for the United States. Because these were the people who put together the notorious Operation Paperclip, which rounded up all of the Nazi rocket scientists, like Werner von Braun, and put them to work for their new American Nazi owners to give them, for the first time in human history, ICBMs with nuclear warheads. They became the first men ever to have the power to destroy the whole world at the touch of a button. And it was clear to many observers at the time that it all rather went to their heads. 
I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. Many people find it very hard to accept that few people could orchestrate the whole global pandemic hoax. But in fact, when we understand the structure about the world's control, it becomes relatively straightforward. I have talked for a long time about a global cult in what some would call the 1%, a global web of interconnected strands of secret societies, semi-secret groups, and then in the public arena, government agencies. Even though all of it, all of these groups appear to be on the surface unconnected, they are. You can symbolize the way this global web works as a structure of a global corporation, say McDonald's, with a headquarters at a point in the world. And in every other country, you have the subsidiaries that operate according to the centrally dictated headquarters. And so you going into McDonald's in Russia, South Africa, Australia, America, Britain, what have you, and you're basically going into the same McDonald's operating in the same way. And this global cult structures itself in very similar lines. At the center of the web, and this is in the shadows, uh, you have what I call the spider. And this is the inner core of the cult that is driving the direction of the world. Then in each country, you have the subsidiary network, uh, certain families, secret societies. Their job is to impose the will of the center, the spider dictating policy in virtually every country. And in each of these subsidiary networks on a national level, you have the pyramids of government and politics, banking, finance, pyramids of media ownership, the pyramids of the medical system. So if you take health policy, the few at the top in each country are dictating how doctors in the rest of the medical profession have to act um, in, in what they have to do. So the medical profession then follow overwhelmingly, unquestioningly, um, and those who actually do question and resist find themselves in their careers often in serious trouble. And the top of these pyramids in each country answer to the same master globally, the spider. Therefore, the will of the spider is dictating on the policy and it will be right across the world. Just the people at the top impose it, the pyramid structure in its entirety. So if we look globally at this pandemic, first of all, so important, forget borders. This cult does not have borders. Borders are for the public. This cult is global and operates globally. And one of its biggest centers is China. The cult was behind the Chairman Mao revolution that turned China into this fascist, communistic, really tyranny. And what they've done behind the walls of that tyranny is incubate a system that they want to play out globally. China has become fiercely controlled, the country that it is, not least controlled via technology with millions and millions of face recognition cameras, which allow the Chinese or authorities to find anyone often literally in minutes in real time. And in the West until now, 
they have had to pay some lip service to freedom and democracy, but only in theory. They have had to, up to this point, have had to hide behind that propaganda. So the West has been able to move slower than China in terms of rolling out this fierce, draconian, Orwellian, fascist control system. But in China, you know, the authorities decide what's going to happen and it just happens. There's no democracy or lip service to freedom to have to deal with. So in China, it's moved extremely, extremely faster. And the time has come where the cult wants to play out the Chinese model of control right across the world. Ask yourself, what has the West become far more like since the pandemic hoax? China. And becoming more so all the time. So this is how the pandemic or what is in turn been known to say or become the pandemic has played out. First of all, you have people taken ill in Wuhan, China, and people ill in Wuhan, China is extraordinarily common given that Wuhan has appalling toxic air, which generates a lot of respiratory problems. And so when these first people started showing signs of illness, a handful of them were tested and they took lung fluid and decided it was caused by a virus. But they never isolated or purified it in and of itself without any other contamination or genetic material. Now, if you're going to prove that a virus exists and you're going to prove that the virus causes an alleged infectious disease, then purification and isolation of that viral material is an absolute solid gold foundation must do. But it's never been done. What you then had in those early days was COVID-19 being diagnosed on symptoms. And what were those symptoms? Flu-like symptoms. Flu-like symptoms, respiratory symptoms in Wuhan. (laughs) Are you having a laugh? Because I am. But it was all on symptoms. And suddenly symptoms that were coming from other sources up to that point were then redesignated this virus which they never isolated, purified, or even shown to exist. Then they start developing this test called the PCR test. And the creator of the test, or Kari Mullis, who in the 1980s actually said that this test should not be used to diagnose infectious disease. But that's exactly what's happened ever since. So now they started adding to this diagnosis uh, by symptoms with a PCR test that wasn't testing for the virus they were claiming to exist. It was testing for an RNA genetic material that is found in the lungs of those people, but has endless other sources and possibilities as for why it's there. The key response, the key was the response, actually. They wanted to have the Chinese response of a fierce draconian lockdown to be the response of the rest of the world. The figures were going up of cases and deaths, but the cases were coming from assumption of symptoms and the test not testing for the virus. And the deaths were coming from this redesignation and their numbers went up. They were building hospitals in a matter of days to cope with the hysteria in the crisis. People were shown on video just collapsing in the street. Have you ever seen anyone collapse in the street? in the West, from the same virus. 
And so they locked down these areas of China with absolute tyranny and inhumanity, and the numbers very quickly started falling. Which, when you are controlling numbers by your diagnosis and your test, or not testing for the virus, it's very easy to push the numbers up and then push the numbers down. Suddenly, these hospitals in next to no time that were built to cope with the crisis, they were shut down. And then you have the World Health Organization, by which Bill Gates controls, and you have Director General Tedros, who has been on the payroll of the Gates Organization forever. He comes out and said that China is the way for everyone else to respond. Gates came out and said the same thing. And Gates has been the second biggest funder, only second to the government of the United States, of the World Health Organization. And if Trump would have actually carried through his threat to stop funding the World Health Organization, then Gates would have been the biggest funder. I mean, he, he owns it. And he also owes Tedros, the director general. So then we start moving into the West and the same process unfolded as people were told in the medical profession, uh, told they were told that this virus is spreading. They started to diagnose it on the basis of symptoms, just like in China. And then they introduced the PCR test. And it's not testing for the virus. They say it's testing. The death numbers did not match what we were told about the deadly nature of this virus. And because China is still a very, very long way away in the minds of most people in America or in the West, it was still somewhere on the other side of the world. So what the cult needed was a Western example to frighten the hell out of Western people. They wanted and needed a COVID-19 crisis that Western people could relate to, to the point of, whoa, if it could happen there, then it can happen here. And so they chose Italy in an area called Lombardy, which is notorious for its toxic air and its respiratory disease, just like Wuhan. And the country was locked down and the government officials uh, and the official government figures. Um, and it revealed that 99% of people said to have died from COVID-19 had one or more other morbidity or reasons to die. But everyone was now diagnosed with COVID-19. And there seemed to be a crisis when old people were dying of things that old people have always died from in that area. And a health spokesperson for the Italian government would later come out and actually say we were, quote, generous on designating deaths for COVID-19. In his view, in truth, only about 12% of the people said to have died actually died from COVID-19. And yet the media will follow the hysteria to frighten the hell out of Western people. So in different countries, the same process is on the same train of thought. And you also had dark suits, not even politicians, driving the policy. Politicians are saying that we will be guided by the science. And who are the scientists? Well, in Britain, you had someone called Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer who has big financial connections to Bill Gates. In America, it was Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks that also have enormous, enormous, I like that word, enormous big connections, financial connections to Bill Gates. And because they don't have the death numbers, they had to produce projections to, ju 
justify the lockdowns, which were in the plans from the start, you know, the Chinese response. So along came Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College in London, big financial connections to Bill Gates with computer models projecting ludicrously, anyone could see it at the time, that a half a million people could die, you know, in Britain from this quote virus and up to, you know, 20 million people in America could die. And as a result of that, the countries were locked down because the computer modeler said, if you don't have the lockdown, then this is what's going to happen. And the lockdown has since killed far more people than any other virus, even if you believe it exists. And it's transformed human society. And it's been done by this global web, which operates in every country and controls the pharmaceutical health pyramids in each country. And the few at the top have had the same policy driven from the center spider, which includes being told to designate almost pretty much anything that moves as COVID-19. To the point where in the United States, they've even introduced financial incentives. So a hospital that diagnoses uh, someone with regular pneumonia got $4,600. But you designate someone with the same symptoms, COVID-19 pneumonia, you then get 13000 And if you put COVID-19 pneumonia diagnosed patient on a ventilator, you then get $39,000. And so many of these people are put on ventilators for no apparent reason, have since died. And so that's the structure of how this pandemic, officially pandemic hoax, has been played. And it's what's driving the policy day to day to transform human society into what they call the new normal, the Great Reset, the Great Scam to Transform Life on Earth. <laughs>